From CAFE and WNYC Studios, this is Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. People need to be reassured that there is a moral order, that ultimately what is true and right and good will win out. And in a world in which so often that is challenged, it is particularly important in the United States that people feel that ultimate justice will be done. That's my guest on the show today, federal judge Jed Rakoff. So I've wanted to have Judge Rakoff on the podcast since the very beginning. He's a judge who sits in the district where I was the United States attorney. I personally have appeared in front of him a number of times. My prosecutors tried cases in front of him. Not only is he a widely respected judge who has overseen some of the most complicated and important cases in the country, but he's also the most perhaps outspoken judge in the country. He writes regularly for the New York Review of Books. I think you'll really enjoy hearing what he has to say about every aspect of criminal justice. But before we get to Judge Rakoff, let me answer your questions. Hey, Preet, my name is David Winton, and I'm a lawyer calling from Northern California. Uh, Is collusion really a crime, or is it just a media shorthand for a variation of conspiracy and or aiding and abetting? Love the show. Listen every single week on Friday mornings when I'm shaving. (laughs) And uh, keep up the good work. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for your question, David. So... Just very quickly, collusion, you're right, is not a legal term of art. There's no statute in the criminal code that makes this kind of collusion that we're talking about in the Russia investigation a crime. It's part of what I understand Bob Mueller and others to be looking at. It may be something for the Congress to consider. But in terms of what particular crimes Bob Mueller and his team are going to be looking at, I would you know, look at the indictments brought against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates and the guilty plea of George Papadopoulos and what may or may not happen to Michael Flynn, and issues relating to uh, fraud, money laundering, obstruction of justice. Those are crimes, and those, are, I think, are the, are the concrete crimes that are being looked at. So when people use the term collusion, it's a, it's a sweeping, broad term, a layperson's term, that includes within it things that may be inappropriate or improper, but not unlawful. This next question comes from a law student at Cardozo. Hi, Mr. Barr. My name is Munling Singh. I'm a third-year law student at Cardozo in New York, and my question is regarding your recent statement saying that if Donald Trump in any way called for the resignation of Bob Mueller, he should be impeached. Not recent, but I wanted to know what the cause for impeachment would be if that was to happen. Thank you. Have a good day. It's true. I did say that if Donald Trump causes the firing of Bob Mueller, he should be impeached, period. And I didn't say it lightly. And I haven't said it with respect to other things that are swirling around. An important distinction to understand that Ben Wittes, a former guest, talked about at some length is there's a difference between what you need to do to prove a criminal case in court and what members of the House of Representatives can decide in discharging their oath of office. What they can decide is an impeachable offense. And it's part, you know, overlapping with what a criminal offense might be. It also has to do with upholding the rule of law and what they perceive to be a high crime or misdemeanor. And it doesn't have to be made out in the same way that a criminal case has to be made out in court. And there are some acts of abuse of power that a president can take that the way I look at the Constitution, and if I had, you know, a a seat in Congress, I might say they're so egregious that impeachment should be on the table. And in light of all the things that have happened up to this point, the firing of Jim Comey, the direction of investigations to be dropped against allies and brought against adversaries, and the constant discussion about how 
he doesn't want the Russia investigation to go forward, which I don't understand because if you haven't done anything wrong, you should have nothing to fear. And the actual indictment of allies who presumably he would want those cases to stop through the firing of Bob Mueller, to me, whether or not that actually rises to an absolute provable case of obstruction, it seems to me to be an abuse of power that people should reject, be upset about, and worry about how it might change the character of the country and the independent way in which law enforcement is supposed to function. So I think if he were to do that, it's such an egregious assault on democracy, on the rule of law, and such an example of abuse of power that members of Congress should vote impeachment. This next question comes from uh, at CJ Crowley 76 on Twitter. And he asked, oh, this is a good one. Which boss song would you use to describe current state of affairs in D.C.? My top two, this is the tweeter, my top two, Brilliant Disguise and Waiting on a Sunny Day. Those are pretty good. Uh, if you listen to the show or you know anything about me, you know I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. And I actually um, would, would pick a song that I quoted from in a tweet some weeks ago after the president did something. I can't even remember what at this point. And I quoted from a song that's fantastic called Badlands. And the recurring lyric in the song is, poor men want to be rich, rich men want to be king, king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. To me, that sums up a lot of what's going on in Washington, D.C. And now for my conversation with Judge Jed Rakoff. We talked about a lot of different things, including the time that he ruled the death penalty to be unconstitutional in a case that my office brought. And we also spent a good amount of time talking about the difficulty of figuring out what a just punishment is for a human being. I think it's a thrilling conversation. I hope you enjoy it. That's coming up right after this. Stay tuned. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. And that's exactly why Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24 7. Order online with the click of a button. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal, considering that SimpliSafe was named Best Overall Home Security of 2020 by U.S. News & World Report. Head to simplysafe.com Preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com Preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. I'm pleased to welcome Judge Jed Rakoff on the podcast. I want the record to reflect I'm here uh, voluntarily and not on subpoena, uh, although you don't have that power anymore, thank God. Thanks but for the reminder. The <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Your Honor. Um, you know, when I used to appear in front of you, and I did many times, uh, I was scared of you a little bit. And there are prosecutors, young and old, and defense lawyers of all ages who are a little bit nervous to appear in front of you. Do you try to have a certain kind of demeanor in court, or do you think you just... Judges should just be themselves. No, I don't think judges should be themselves in the sense of too informal or too conversational, unlike, for example, the conversation we're having now. When a judge puts on the robe, you are no longer 
your individual with your individual idiosyncrasies. You are the representative of the rule of law. And that's a very humbling but also important function. And you need to conduct your court with the seriousness that that entails. I, I'm not out to intimidate anyone, but I, what I am out to do is make sure that they understand that everything that goes on in court is serious business and needs to be taken seriously. But I've been there when you crack jokes. You will crack jokes on the bench. Well, the the thing is, when I was a lawyer and I would crack jokes, no one would laugh. <laughs> now everyone's required to, so it's it's, it's very ego satisfied. Did you? Uh, would you like to be described as a tough judge? Tough but fair is what I think is what most judges uh, aspire to. I, and I don't, I don't, again, I, uh, it, it is not because I don't have the highest respect for the lawyers. And many lawyers are nervous when they're court. Many of them have worked very hard and, and, and are disconcerted uh, if the judge asks them a sarcastic question or a difficult question. But the object of this whole process is to get at the truth and to resolve disputes in accordance with the law. And that has to be taken with a, a degree of decorum and high seriousness that can sometimes be intimidating. Um, when I was a practicing lawyer, and I was for 25 years before I went on the bench, there was never a time that I appeared in court when I wasn't nervous as a cat. But I think that's a good thing. I think that reflected my knowledge and the knowledge of every lawyer that this is serious business. This is a broad question. What is your view of the proper role of the judge? And the reason I ask is there's this ongoing debate from time immemorial since there's been any kind of judicial system of whether the judge is supposed to simply decide disputes that appear before him or her, call balls and strikes like Justice Roberts famously said at his confirmation hearing, or have his or her eye more broadly on what justice is and righting wrongs as opposed to figuring out what the law strictly allows or requires in a certain case. So, although that is, as you say, a ongoing debate, the truth is that most judges are in the middle of that, including uh, myself. Your first and immediate duty is to decide the dispute before you, and you have to decide it in accordance with the law. But the Anglo-American legal tradition is one of the law developing from case to case. And there are many, many cases, I would probably say the majority of cases, where you have a certain flexibility and you can move the law forward or you can move the law backward or you can just leave it static. And in deciding how to address that, uh, I think a judge, a good judge, says to herself or himself, have circumstances change. Is, is this different? Is that precedent that was set in 1850 no longer really relevant to the situation we're confronted with today? Now, a district judge has the further problem that you're bound by your immediate superiors, the Court of Appeals, and ultimately by the Supreme Court. So you've, in some ways, less flexibility. On the other hand, it's at the district court level, the trial court level, where the facts get decided and the facts often drive the law as the saying goes and the outcome legally is often affected by the facts of the case. I will with, with great apologies tell one more joke. Please. Um, so this is to illustrate the difference between the three levels of federal courts. So 
three judges went duck hunting. It was a Supreme Court justice, a court of appeals judge, and a district judge. And they had a permit that only allowed them to shoot ducks but no other birds. So the first flock of birds flies across the sky. The Supreme Court justice picks up his gun and then he puts it down. He says, you know, it sort of looks like a duck, but I'm not sure if it meets the original meaning of the word duck. I'm, I'm going to have to look into the Federalist Papers and do a lot of research before I can decide whether it's a duck or not. Then a second group of birds flies across the sky and the Court of Appeals judge picks up her gun and then she puts it down. She says, you know, I think it's a duck, but I don't feel comfortable making that decision without consulting with my two colleagues on the panel. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to shoot. Um, and then the third group of birds flies by. The district court judge puts up his gun, bam, and the bird falls dead on the ground and he turns to his colleagues and he says, sure, hope it's a duck. <laughs> <laughs> How many ducks did you shoot? Every day. Every day. <laughs> Good. You know, on this point, though, of what the proper role of a judge is, is it proper for a judge to have a policy agenda or things that they want to fix? So the answer is it depends on the situation. Policy is mostly set by the legislature and by the executive. But there are particular areas where judges are looked to as the protectors. And I'm talking about free speech, the rights of minorities, the rights of unpopular people, because the executive and the legislature do the will of the majority. But as we all know, uh, there are times when there is a tyranny of the majority. But why do you call that policy as opposed to just enforcing what the law is. So well, if the law it, doesn't protect the minorities, there's something you're supposed I, to do about it? I, my only point is that I think judges have a special obligation to take account of the rights of minorities, of the rights of free speech, of the rights of unpopular individual, because those groups have no one else that will protect them in a way that the majority has the legislature and the executive uh, well, but, uh, protecting but, them. But presumably, if you're deciding some question that involves those groups, there is a lawyer representing that interest. Isn't that sufficient? Well, there are lawyers and lawyers. And in many cases, in fact, people are not represented by lawyers. That's another very major problem in our legal system of unrepresented people. But it's a substantial number of cases where the judge really has the very awkward role of having to help out legally the what we call the pro se defendant, the person who's representing themselves, and yet at the same time then decide fairly between the parties. But more generally to answer your question, it is rare for most judges, certainly it's rare for me to sort of spring a whole new theory on people. I think I've really only done it once in all the cases I've had. I'm going to get to that in yeah, a moment. But, but it is not unusual for a uh, judge to ask questions that will bring out ideas and considerations that maybe have not yet been focused on by the lawyers and which the judge does because they, the judge thinks that's a, an issue that ought to be considered. So you said once that there are some cases where you could argue that one conclusion should be reached versus the opposite conclusion. And you said, quote, in such cases, a judge's policy leanings will often influence the judge's decision. Are you saying that that's just a natural part of human nature or that that's how it should be and that's okay? It is a natural part of human nature, so you can't avoid it. I think what a judge has to do is be careful 
that he's just not exercising his prejudices, his biases, his personal agendas. That is not proper. That is a violation of your oath as a judge. But if the case is one where there are alternative possibilities and you then have to exercise foresight, that's an important part of what any judge does. How will this play out, not just in the case before me, but how will it play out in the 500 cases that will come up in the future? And in assessing that, your own broadly defined policy uh, considerations inevitably play a role. Do you think it's inappropriate for people, whether they're politicians or editorial writers, to harshly criticize a judge or his or her decision? I think it is perfectly lawful to do so under the First Amendment and no one should pay any penalty. I think because judges can't fight back, we are prohibited from issuing a press release, oh, that terrible attack in X or Y or Z is unfair. We can't do that. We, right. So, but, but doesn't it seem, but, but, you, but yeah. there are other people who could so, argue on, on a judge's Yeah, usually behalf. the Bar it's, Association will come to, uh, I do think it's- other reasonable people. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's appropriate for a lawyer to be vociferously critical of a judge, uh, except in the most extreme circumstances. Is it appropriate for a president of the United States to be vociferously critical of a judge? Uh, I think the answer to that is um, it is within the president's constitutional right, um, uh, but I think um, he ought to take account of the fact uh, that uh, uh, the judges can't fight back. So it's, it can be, in extreme circumstances, a form of bullying. So if politicians shouldn't criticize judges, do you have a view on the propriety of judges criticizing in the other direction? I, I say that because you have been outspoken on a lot of things. I'm outspoken. I, I don't uh, think I've ever criticized by name any elected official of, at any rank. I think that's um, right. Judges are forbidden under the code of ethics, for example, of entering into the political fray at all. The Supreme Court is not governed by our code of ethics. So that's a special category that I know you may be trying to sneak me into. But <laughs> I was going to ask, gonna, but I'm not going to comment judge, on you're, it. You anticipate they, well that if you, if you had any view of what you know Justice Ginsburg said last year during the election cycle so, about Donald Trump. Justice Ginsburg is one of the greatest Americans I know. I am just totally in awe of her. She, her whole life is one that the rest of us just, you know, would hope to emulate even a little bit. I would agree with that. Uh, she probably made a mistake on that one occasion. I think she acknowledged that. And that was, you know, the rest of us who have never made any mistake should, <laughs> should cast the first stones. So. Not here. <laughs> I want to ask you about a case that you presided over when I was in the office as a line assistant. It was not my case, but two close friends of mine were the prosecutors in that case. Excellent, excellent lawyers. Uh, you know what I'm going to talk about. I do. And it's a case in which it's called United States versus Canones. It's a case in which the defendant was charged with, among other things, the murder of someone he thought was a confidential informant for the government. And I remember because the prosecutors were friends of mine, they showed me some of the evidence, one piece of which was a picture of the victim who had been tied to a chair, uh, beaten, strangled, uh, burned, unclear if he was burned to death or he was burned after. And it was, it, it was worse than that. It was, he was tortured for hours before they finally killed him. As gruesome a crime 
as you come across. Yes. And also an assault on the justice system and the ability of people uh, to be held accountable. Yes. And it's, it's, it's the worst kind of crime. Now, the office, not under my leadership, I mean, I wasn't there yet as the U.S. attorney, decided to seek the death penalty, which is a rare thing. I think it hadn't happened in that office in decades, and it happened maybe once or twice since, and, and I never sought the death penalty in any case during the seven yeah. and a half years when I was there. Actually, but, my understanding is that the U.S. attorney then, Mary Jo White, did not particularly want to uh, seek the death penalty even there, but she was overruled uh, by central justice in Washington. Was John Ashcroft the yes. attorney general at the time? Yes. Yeah, there was some of that you know, playing out. And that was a terrible case in which the parties made arguments, the lawyers on both sides made arguments about whether the death penalty was okay in that case or not. And you decided in an opinion that surprised everyone, including my friends, that the death penalty was un- unconstitutional. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in a nutshell for, for folks who are listening, you basically said that it was a due process violation, the death penalty, because if it turns out that you were actually innocent, you wouldn't be able to make your case of innocence because if the death penalty had been carried out, you'd be dead. So interesting, clever, some might say, ultimately failed in the Court of Appeals. How did that come about that that was a decision you made based on arguments that had not been put forward by any of the lawyers? Right. That's the case I was referring to. It's the only case I've ever been the, if you will, the initiator as opposed to just asking questions and things like that. So I'll give you it's a, a, a background, and and I think I have to state at the outset that when I first went on the bench, I was a proponent of the death penalty. My brother had been murdered in cold blood, and if you had asked me at the time of his death, did I favor the death penalty for the guy who murdered him? Absolutely. I changed my mind. Uh, can, but, can I stop you yeah. there for a moment? Sorry, Judge. So what you described is a very human feeling. Hmm. If you've been a victim of a crime or you've had a close relative, and that's a, a terribly tragic story that not a lot of people know about you, would you describe your desire for the death penalty for his murderer to have been something that you felt in your gut and your heart? It wasn't based on any consideration of on the one hand or on the other hand, the kinds of reasoning that a judge goes through. It was an, it was an instinctive human emotion, which I totally understand. I think... To this day, the people who are opposed to the death penalty, many of whom I greatly, greatly respect, are less sensitive to that aspect of human emotion than they should be. And uh, certainly I felt it in my gut. But did you when, – when before, you must have had a view on the death penalty because you had been a lawyer and you know, thought about these issues. Did your feeling – in favor of the death penalty increase? Oh, yes. Substantially? Yes. Yeah. Um, before then, I didn't have, uh, I hadn't been called upon any of my cases to really examine it. So I had sort of a, an everyday person's uh, knowledge. And I was vaguely aware that there were competing studies as to whether it had a meaningful deterrent effect or not, that kind of policy debate. But it was not something that I had really looked at carefully. But also racial disparity. You you were aware of those studies too. I, I became more aware of the racial disparity later, but I was at least aware of it. And I knew it was much more common in the South and it was much more common against African-Americans and that there was a long history of – black men uh, allegedly raping white women and then being put uh, very quickly to death. So I was generally aware of that problem. So let's go back to the Canones case. Well, I have to give you a little bit more background. So the big thing that intervened between the time I went on the bench and the time I had this case was the Innocence Project. 
And they had shown scientifically and definitively through DNA testing that there were dozens, it's now hundreds, of people who had been convicted of murder and other very serious crimes had been given either life imprisonment or the death penalty, had been in prison for decades, and then lo and behold, it turns out they were completely innocent. And that was quite mind-boggling to me. As a former prosecutor, I had been under the what I now consider the illusion that mistakes like that were very, very, very rare. And uh, I don't think that is the truth. And I think uh, the evidence now is there are more uh, wrongful convictions than we ever imagined. Um, So that was the fact change that was part of the change. But the other change was a case called Herrera. And it was a case that I had read and I went back when I first got the Canonas case and reread it to make sure I was hadn't for, forgotten what it stood for. And my view, and it's still my view, uh, though the Court of Appeals disagreed with me on this, is that that case stands for the proposition that it is a violation of due process to deprive someone who is actually innocent from asserting and bringing forth meaningful proof of his actual innocence no matter how much longer after the original conviction and appeal it may be. The reason that people disagree about that case is there were multiple opinions. There was no one opinion commanding the majority. But the key opinion in my view was Sandra Day O'Connor's and she provided the fifth vote for the majority in that case. And she states emphatically that she's only joining the majority because she takes it to be the law of the land that it's never too late to prove that you are factually innocent. Right. And your um, point was then, well, there's one time when it's too late if you've been executed. Uh, yes. and, and, and for, you know, there these people who were being exonerated who have been jailed for 20 years, there are a lot of other people who there was strong suspicion may have been innocent too. But it was too late because they had been executed. So that was, to my mind, when I combined the legal thrust of Herrera with the major change, in fact, brought about by the Innocence Project and DNA, I thought this was a new situation and called for a different approach. So then I had to confront the question, should I suggest it to the parties? I had never done that before. I've never done it since in anything like that major way. But I felt I had no choice. Was it because of the significance of the issue? Yes. And as the Supreme Court has said in many cases, death is different. And so I raised it with the parties, but I gave the government not one but two chances to litigate it. So after they had indicated that they thought I was completely wrong, I wrote an initial opinion and said, here's why I still think uh, I'm going this way. But I want to put it down on paper and give the government another shot to object to it. And I took very seriously their objections, but I still was convinced. I will mention to you it's the only case I ever showed to another judge before I decided it. Which judge? Uh, Leonard Sand, who was a great judge who recently died. Yes, he was. Because, again, I was bothered by the fact that here it was I was asserting a theory that originated with me. 
that didn't come from the lawyers. Right. And so I thought you, I should be really hesitant about that. Can you share uh, what, what Judge Sand thought about that? Yes. Yeah, so I, I showed Judge Sand the first opinion. I showed him the briefs of the government after the first opinion. I said, I'm thinking of coming out the same way. Please take a look at it. I'd really appreciate your giving me your view. Uh, and he came back and he said, I think you're right. Uh, unfortunately, think, he wasn't sitting on the Court of Appeals. <laughs> did you have any personal feeling, not intellectual angst, but personal angst when you were making the decision about the death penalty in Canones, given the history with your brother? How did you deal with that? It really came out at the sentencing because after I was reversed by the short-sighted Second Circuit, the, that's a joke, but I did disagree with their decision. I do think my view will ultimately be the view of the law of the land. But after I was reversed... The case went to trial. The jury had a choice between the death penalty or life imprisonment, mandatory life imprisonment. They unanimously chose mandatory life imprisonment, and they were aware of all the gruesome facts that you've mentioned, but yes. they still felt that this was not a case to impose the death penalty. So then we went to the formal sentencing. In some ways, it was – there was not much that, for me to do because it was a mandatory life imprisonment, but the government – brought forth the mother of the victim, and she made a passionate statement. I was moved in my heart, and I mentioned the first time I'd ever mentioned uh, in any public setting what had happened to uh, my brother, but I wanted her to know that I could feel what she was feeling, that I had not forgotten those feelings at all. So that was the way it came out. Are you saying it's important for judges to have empathy for everyone who appears in front of them? Yes, absolutely. You mentioned that statement, and I, I read something you said about that victim speaking, and it struck me very hard what you said. You said, quote, speaking about the Canona sentence, but I think more generally, quote, the victim wants to have some reassurance that there is cosmic justice, so to speak, close quote. What is cosmic justice and what is the prosecutor's role, the judge's role in making sure that that happens? Because that's the law is not written for cosmic justice. So the law deals with technicalities, deals in a broader setting with policies. The death penalty debate tends to be a debate about does it have deterrent effect and things like that. Those are all important, but they're missing the human emotional element. Congress – in the law that I have to apply in every single sentence, says that the court must take account of deterrence and this and that and, quote, just punishment. And what do they mean by that? What I interpret that to mean is people need to be reassured that there is a moral order, that ultimately what is true and right and good will win out. And in a world in which so often that is challenged and terrible things occur, it is particularly important in the United States that people feel that ultimate justice will be done. And that's really what I meant. And by the way, it, it cuts both ways. There's, the victim needs to be uh, very much considered. But the defendant is a human being too. And there's empathy that, that has to be exercised in that direction as well. And there are his, the defendant's family. And there are always many people who have to be taken account of. Speaking more about sentencing in cases that are not as life and death as a yes. death penalty case, you know, one of the reasons why I have never been interested in having your role is even though as a prosecutor we would advocate for certain sentences, I really 
didn't want to be a person who has to decide and be the ultimate decider of how many days, weeks, months, years you take liberty away from a human being. I think it would weigh on me too much and that might surprise some people. And how does it, how do you handle that as a judge? You do it all the time. Well, you're not alone. I know some very, very fine lawyers who I think ought to have been judges who would have been great judges who have declined to even be considered for it because for the same reason you are. So I guess my view is that if someone has to do this difficult job, better that it should be someone who is neutral, who is experienced, who has seen a lot of life and who can see both sides or off there more than two sides, mm -hmm. many sides of the situation. So I think I'm no better at it than anyone else, but I do think the judiciary is well situated to be the people who decide uh, what a sentence should be. I mention that because Congress and many of the state legislatures have taken a lot of that power away from judges with things like mandatory minimums and that's terrible and that means sentences, what you are going to do with this human being who has done some bad things but who is also a human being is going to be decided in the abstract by some law that was passed with no knowledge of any of the individuals right. who might come up in cases. And as you know, there have even been federal judges who have resigned because they think mandatory minimums required them to give an unjust sentence. And even lesser than that, I've been in the courtroom when some judges, you know, become so moved that they take a break. And I don't, I don't know if they go back and consult a law book or their faith or something that's extrajudicial and if that's appropriate or not. But I can't imagine doing it. I can't imagine doing it on a regular basis, even though obviously prosecutors make many decisions that have a consequence on sentencing. But one of my questions to you is so that people... Although I have to interrupt <clears throat> on a lighter note. Uh, Please, would, we could use it right they, about they, now. Yeah. So, so, so I was talking to you, to the folks here in the studio, and I said, I'm going to ask Pre Perara whether he wants to run for governor. And <laughs> I know he will say no. And that's a sure sign that he's going to run for governor. Now, having now set you up... <laughs> Are you going to run for governor? I am not. Uh, that's, I, see, I neither that's, want to be a judge. That's all the proof I need. <laughs> <laughs> you came all the way here to ask me that question yeah, right. on tape. What, but to what degree, when you had to sentence someone to a mandatory minimum because that's what the law required, did you, uh, did you chafe at it? Do you just yes. sort of say, I have to do it, and then you go home and have a large scotch? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you and your colleagues deal with imposing sentences that you don't believe in? So putting aside from the fact that I don't drink, uh, so it, it would be a, a large Coca-Cola. But in all seriousness, uh, I try before every sentence, I try to figure out as best I can with knowledge of all the frailties of, of, and, that any judge has, what is the right sentence in this case, regardless of guidelines, regardless of mandatory minimums, regardless of anything but what I think justice requires. And when it is something very different from what I am required by law to apply, I feel absolutely terrible. As I mentioned, my colleague, uh, John Martin, resigned from the bench just because he couldn't take that anymore. It is also, looking at it in a much broader sense, mandatory minimums are one of the causes, by no means the only cause, of this terrible problem of mass incarceration that we have in this country, uh, where we're locking up millions of people far more than any other country in the world. 
there's a, a couple of studies that are so insightful. Juries, if asked after they convict a guy, what sentence will you give, almost always recommend a lenient sentence. The same people, if they read about a crime in the newspaper, say, throw away the key, lock him up forever. And that's because they're only saying half the story. They are saying the awful crime. But they don't see all the innumerable other factors that operate that may often be mitigating factors. Right. So, so you try a little bit, and you think it's right, when the sentencing guidelines talk about mostly what the crime was. You think it's better and, and more proper and more just to focus on the overall character of the person. But how can, you ever, how can you ever know that? The guidelines are, in my view, totally misguided. They start with the premise in my view, the irrational premise that all the many factors, the kind of things we're talking about and a host of other factors that inform sentence can somehow be set down as numbers, two points for this, four points for that. It's it's a mathematical fetish. And, you know, most people who are listening probably don't realize that under the federal system, there's literally a grid, you know, across the top. Right. You have categories of, of what your criminal history is and how many priors you have. On the left, you have a point system, and it looks more like a bingo card than a recipe for doing justice. You said it very well. And they used to be mandatory. For 15 years, they were mandatory. Now, fortunately, they are discretionary, but they still play a role because the law requires the judge as the very first thing he does at sentencing to determine what the guideline sentence is. And so right. psychologically, it still has an effect. Just, you know, I think it's very easy to criticize the guidelines, and I have negative views about a lot of the guidelines also, and I did as the United States attorney. But like everything else, the question is, what do you do instead? And one of the reasons that I would never want to be a judge is I'm not sure you know, humans are capable of coming up with a perfectly just system for deciding how many hours, weeks, months, years of liberty you take away from another human being. How can it be that you can know with precision in the eyes of either Lady Liberty or Justice or anyone else that for this person, six years is enough as opposed to seven years? And the gap between the six and seven years, when you're doing this as a business, you know, you don't give it a second thought really, but that's a year of someone's life during which lots of things can happen. It can make the difference between seeing your child graduate or not, or being in a relationship or not, or missing the death of a relative or not. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm more pessimistic on this idea that you, know, you could give more discretion to judges. I don't know that that ultimately will give you cosmic justice. Do you think that sentencing laws and guidelines are too tough across the board? And the particular thing I want to ask you about, if you have a view, is what the current Attorney General Jeff Sessions has done with respect to how to treat people who are eligible for mandatory minimums in low-level drug trafficking. And at one point, the former Attorney General Eric Holder issued guidance to the field when I was the U.S. Attorney saying we should consider not throwing the book at people who were low-level, nonviolent, etc. And Attorney General Sessions has largely withdrawn that. Do you have a view on whether that's good or wise? So I think you should put it in historical perspective. Congress not just the attorney general, not just the executive, but Congress as well, steadily ratcheted up sentences for 30 years. This was initially a reaction to the rise in crime beginning in the late 60s. Crime peaked in 1995. It has gone down every year since then, and yet we continue to apply policies that if they ever made sense, only made sense in the context of rising crimes. The policy you're referring to was the policy of both 
Republican and Democratic attorney generals. Holder was somewhat unique in cutting back on it, and he didn't do that immediately, but he did uh, eventually. The prosecutor's defense of all that is that it tends to get people to cooperate. Uh, So the theory is we only can build cases by getting low-level people to cooperate against higher-level people. And the way we do that is by throwing the book at the low-level people, and then they will flip and give us the case on higher-level people. There's some truth to that. But I think, like all truths, it's got to be balanced and not made an across-the-board policy. Last question. Quick answer, because I know you have to go teach a class. If you could wave at your, your alma mater, at my alma mater, uh, if you could wave a magic wand, and I believe you may have one, and and change one thing, no, my magic wands belong to my daughters. So I, 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 well, we can use her magic wand. The, uh, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to improve the delivery of justice in the criminal justice system, what would it be? I think I would restore to judges almost total responsibility for sentencing, not only by doing away with mandatory minimums and guidelines, but also closely related to that by having judges have some scrutiny over plea bargains so that it wasn't the prosecutor who was in effect sentencing or determining the sentence, but it was really the judge. I think when left to themselves to determine what judge uh, what justice is, the judges would do a far better job of sentencing and we would not have mass incarceration. And you say that even though, I trust you'll agree with me, that there are some judges that have a lot of fallibility and don't get it right and are not as thoughtful as some judges that you know you may be familiar with. So in this cold, cruel world, people make mistakes, people uh, view things differently, and um, the only person who ever got it always right was uh, the former U.S. attorney. But uh, the, the, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, yes, of course. So you have to choose, if you will, the lesser of two evils. And I think judges are better at it than any of the alternatives. Judge, I want to thank you again for appearing on your first podcast. Here My pleasure. Second. Thank you so much. No. So this is usually the point in the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me. Well, this week, the most important news for Americans is that it's Thanksgiving. And as I sit here doing this podcast, uh, my thoughts turn to my family. And it turns out I've always thought for the past number of years that I have two families. I have my actual family, who I love very much. But during the time that I was a U.S. attorney and when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, I always thought of my colleagues in that office in the Southern District of New York also as my family. We really did treat each other that way. And every year, I would send a Thanksgiving message uh, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving telling people that they could leave early for the holiday and get a, a jump on cooking and travel. And I would always repeat a phrase that I began to use as soon as I got there because I thought that the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, which I miss very much, was a special place because there's lots of people who spend their lives wondering whether or not they can make a difference, and they, they wait for that opportunity. And for most people, that chance never comes. And for folks who are in public service, and I think in particular in a certain kind of public service, like at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where your only mission is to do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way, that's a really special privilege. And if you have the honor of having that privilege, then every day is Thanksgiving. 
And on my first Thanksgiving, no longer in that seat after so many years serving in that position, I went back and looked at the message I sent last year to my office. And I just want to read it to you. And hopefully if there are people from my old office listening, uh, they'll hear me say this too, because I didn't have a chance to send that email this year. And what I said last year was, and remember, this was just a couple of weeks after the election. I said, no matter what changes occur outside the sovereign district of New York, which is what we used to call ourselves sometimes, one thing never changes here. The commitment to justice and service. Doing the right thing is in our DNA because it is in the DNA of this institution. This place has always collected the finest group of public servants anywhere. That is as everlasting and certain as the ritual feasting of Turkey at Thanksgiving and as predictable as what I say every year in this message. When you have the special privilege of working in a place like this, every day is Thanksgiving. I say that every year because I feel it every day. Thank you for all you do for our country. And so as I think about what to give thanks for, I give thanks for the fact that there are dedicated men and women in my old office who continue to do every day what they were hired to do, to protect the public, to do the right thing, and to deliver justice to the American people. I miss them very much, and I hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Judge Jed Rakoff, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners discover the show. As always, send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Chris Berube, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. The terrific music you're listening to right now is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. We have new episodes coming for you next Thursday after Thanksgiving. Have a great holiday, everyone. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.